my name is Rod, my pronouns are still he and him, and um, we're doing a series on the prophets. Um, anyone know why Sinead O'Connor's up there? Show of hands again. Uh, yeah, so there's, these are all things just to make you feel shame for not having been here regularly. <laughs> uh, Yanni laughed, so that means I'm speaking slowly and loudly enough. Excellent. Um, I'm going to start with a prayer. Um, this is something that Tamsin found a little while ago, and I like it. Oh, it's not working. Can I have the next slide, Dan? There we go. Yeah, my tendency is always just to rush flailing into a talk, so I'm enjoying this prayer just for my own sake, if not for yours. Loving God, you have led us to this place not to shield us from heartache and the pain of human life, but to heal us and inspire us, to gently redirect us till we see the world as you do and love it with your love. Amen. It's always relevant, that prayer. Um, so let's just have a minute. Well, I'm going to take a little minute, and you, you're welcome to join me to, um, yeah, just to try to be present and counteract the effect of the coffee. So that was a rod minute, about 40 seconds. Um, so we're looking at the prophets in this series and we're looking at what they did so that we can spot prophets in our own time. That's my quick praise of the series so far. Uh, and because my talks are often kind of meandering and hard to follow, I thought we'd have a learning objective this morning. Uh, so if you can... <laughs> um, so our learning objective, this may not mean anything to you right now, but by the end I hope it does. To use the long rope arc that is the prophetic tradition to help us love and forgive the prophets, our younger selves, and other people who resemble our younger selves. Note, this learning objective may apply more to me th that than to you. I did this this morning, and I stayed up late watching Australia versus New Zealand. So, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we should have success criteria, shouldn't we? I do apologise. Yeah, where's the rubric? Oh, dear. I shouldn't have stumbled into this teaching territory, should I? Yeah, so that's what we're going to try to do. Um... And so what I thought I'd do is I'll kind of be a bit reedy this morning uh, so we can move quickly through uh, this material and have a little bit of time at the end to get your thoughts, reactions. Um, so last week, Shane described the prophetic task. Does this work yet? Oh, it does. Um, this is sort of a, a summary of my eight-point thing 
about the, uh, the prophets. Uh, but basically, the, the prophets have this transcendent encounter with God, and then they represent God to God's people. And Shane described the, this representing of God as acting like the conscience of the people, holding up a mirror. The prophets hold up a mirror to their society and say, this is what you look like. Is this how we are supposed to look as a people? And this prophetic task in the Hebrew scriptures, and I would suggest now, is often prompted by calamity. So either a present calamity or a future calamity. So the the prophets see something terrible happening or about to happen, and they point out the threads in the tradition that need to be attended to, the things that society are doing that are leading to this calamity, that are creating the context for calamity. Um, Often... For the Hebrew prophets, this is described as punishment for things that they have done. We don't necessarily need to embrace that punishment framework to still see the logic. And, you know, when you think about modern prophets like Sinead O'Connor or Greta Thunberg, you see people that are not using that punishment framework but are just talking about natural consequences of behaviour. But either way, the prophet holds up this mirror to society and says, is this the way we want to look? Is this what we want to be? And if not, these are the the threads in our tradition that need to be attended to, things that need to be removed, things that need to be added. So the other thing that Shane did last week was um, contrast this model of a tradition which is a real mess of threads, some that are central. For example, in the Christian tradition, one of those things might be that God is love. Some that are central, some that are not quite so central, things that are ways of applying maybe those central threads. Uh, So Shane said, this is actually what a tradition looks like, but for most of us, what we grew up with was this kind of guitar or microphone lead as a model for what a tradition actually is. It's something that is complete, is simple and completely unchanging, and our job is just to keep doing the same things, that the challenge is not discerning what to do, the challenge is having the will or the obedience to do what is obvious. And that's certainly what I grew up with in my church tradition. It was really obvious what the Bible was saying. It was really obvious what the biblical tradition was, and it had never changed. And the challenge was not to discern the way forward. The challenge was just to have the will, the obedience, to fight against your own sinful impulses enough to do what was obviously the right thing to do and which had never changed. Um, For those that were here last week, does that sound like a good summary of what... We covered? I'm not going to look at Shane. Yeah. <laughs> so as Shane says, there is, there's a comforting simplicity to this metaphor because 
it's not, it's not messy, it's not complicated. There's no discernment and if we are obedient enough, there's no risk of getting anything wrong. But unfortunately, it's just not true of how tradition works. And this is what became clear as we looked at the prophets, the Hebrew prophets. Um, Shane explained the way that they fall into different categories. So there are the different prophets looked at different threads in the tradition and said, this is what's responsible for where we find ourselves. For some, it was, we're not pure enough, so we need to get rid of people from other nations from our midst. For others, it was about actual, actually including foreigners with greater gentleness. For others, it was about a focus on justice and nothing to do with purity or sacrifice. Um, and so much as we might like tradition to look like a microphone cord, when you look at the scriptures, you see that it is like this messy rope where different prophets are diagnosing the problem as coming from a different place. Uh, And we see this in Jesus as well. Jesus also models for us, as Shane said, this a practice of looking at these different strands within the prophetic tradition and choosing sides, choosing to be on the side of justice rather than on the side of purity. Choosing, as Shane said, to... edit the texts that he inherited to make them, in the case of this passage from Isaiah, which we looked at last week, to make them less violent. So Jesus, in his first sermon in Luke, quotes Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because of um, his appointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, etc. In Isaiah, the last line is to proclaim the day of vengeance of our God, but Jesus chooses to not quote that. And the last thing about last week is that Shane talked about the anxiety that the example of Jesus might create for us. We might think it's okay for Jesus to pick and choose threads of his tradition and then weave in new threads, but how could we presume to do the same? What if we get it wrong? What if we listen to prophetic voices who are getting it wrong? And what sits behind these questions, for me, is fear fear of getting it wrong because of fear of the consequences if we get it wrong. The reason why we might want to cling to the illusion that tradition is like a microphone cable is because if it's simple and we can get it right, then we won't have to bear the wrath of a judgmental God. I was talking to um, Jackie, Jackie Martin, during the week, and she's talking about her neighbours. She's convinced that her neighbour is a drug dealer, um, and there's a lot of evidence that he is. Uh, 
And she talked about bumping into, yeah, that's right. She talked about bumping into this man and his family in the, in the car park of their building the other day and interacting with the kids. And every question that she asked the kids, they would look to their father to get a sense from him of whether it was okay to talk and what it was okay to say. And that's, that's what happens when you live with a capricious and violent father. That's what happens when you live with a capricious and violent God. Capricious just means kind of unpredictably changeable. And of course, when your life is driven by fear of the anger of an authority figure, you want to keep things really simple. You don't want to get them wrong. So, as I said before, I'm a bit of a broken record on this, but so much of this comes down to the image of God that sits behind the way we engage with everything, the way we engage with our tradition. If God is a brutal father who will punish us for getting things wrong, then no wonder we want a simple model of reality, a simple model of tradition that we just have to obey and we can avoid punishment. So, as I said in week one, we need to shift our image of God if we are to have the courage and honesty to embrace this model of our tradition, the real uncertainty and complexity of it. And it's only possible to do that, I think, with a kind and gentler view of God as opposed to as we saw with the ancient Near East, this view of God as capricious and violent. So I want to talk quickly about a few implications of this rather than just spending the morning repeating Shane's talk. Um, We need a necessary distance from the violence of the Hebrew Scriptures for us to be able to forgive their excesses, I think, and to receive their treasure. Just feel like I've jumped a bit. No, maybe not. No. Um, so it got me thinking about this, this metaphor, and I thought a way of extending this... A way of extending it for me was inspired by this um, Martin Luther King Jr. quote. Um, you may be familiar with it. Um, he says that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Yeah, so the arc of the moral universe is long, and, but it bends towards justice. Um, and so it insp inspired me to make an arc of prophetic rope. <laughs> And this relates to our learning objective from before. <laughs> so the rope of prophetic tradition is long, but it bends towards justice and love and better models of God. Um, so for those at home, <laughs> I've basically got five photos of Shane's rope of tradition and turned it into like a little rainbow arc. Uh, 
the way the reason I think this is helpful is because of the way that you can see that the beginning of the ark is pointing almost in the opposite direction of the end of the ark, and yet it's all connected. And I think this image helps us in our relationship with the Hebrew prophets to engage with them in a way that is much more forgiving and which um, gets a lot more of their treasure. Um, one of the people that's really helped me with this is Brian McLaren, who's a writer from, from the States, and he does a brilliant job of looking at a lot of the stories from the Hebrew scriptures and looking at the parallel stories in ancient times and seeing how these Jewish stories out of context might seem terrible, but in the context of what they're contrasted to at their time are a real step forward in this long, slow arc of tradition towards justice and love. So the, the example that we've talked about before is the flood story. If you look at the flood story in, in Hebrew scriptures of God destroying all of humanity and most of the animals, it just seems barbaric and violent. And yet if you contrast it to the parallel stories in the ancient Near East where the reason for sending the flood was just because the gods were sick of the noise that human beings were created and just wanted to shut them up. In that story, there's no commitment to goodness, there's no commitment to reform, there's no desire to bless humanity. It's pure, capricious destruction. It's the same with, and we've talked about this before as well, with the, the sacrifice of Isaac, with Abraham sacrificing Isaac. And again, out of context, the idea of God asking Abraham to sacrifice his child, even if at the last second he says, oh, don't worry, you don't have to do it. Like tying up your child and having a knife about to plunge it into their heart and then at the last minute saying, you know, oh, actually, surprise, we don't have to do this. It's hard to imagine a more traumatizing experience for a child. And for us, reading it from our vantage point, it just seems horrific. But then if you see it as a, a mythological story that probably never happened, which the Hebrew people told as a way of reminding themselves that as opposed to all the other cultures around them, child sacrifice was never going to be a part of their tradition, suddenly there's this incredible reframing where you go, oh, okay, rather than something out of any historical context which just looks barbaric, we see it as a step on this journey towards where we are now. From our context, it's pointing almost in the opposite direction of what we understand justice and love and kindness to look like but seen in its own context and seen as part of this incredibly long arc of history. Suddenly there's, there's enough distance and enough capacity in us to see some of the treasure, to see it as part of our inheritance rather than just rejected as hideous, which again is a very understandable response when you read a lot of those Old Testament stories. Even the vengeful and bloodthirsty stuff in the prophets, when you see it as a performative version of vengeance, a way of processing vengeful impulses from 
a community that has experienced genocide, a way of processing it rather than enacting it. Again, it's just all of these ways of us having enough distance and enough empathy and enough understanding of context to embrace this as part of our tradition and to find the richness as well as leaving behind the things that no longer apply to our context and to our reality. So I want to finish by just coming to the biographical, coming back to ourselves and, yeah, to our learning objective, <laughs> which is hopefully starting to make sense. Because I think, if I think about my own life, my own life is very much like this. I think about some of the things that I believed, some of the things I did as a 19-year-old, as a 20-year-old, I shudder. I've told this story before, but I, I remember a time, probably 1920, talking to a group of, in my youth group, kind of like people in their kind of, you know, mid to late teens, and um, telling them what I thought God, God's understanding or position on abortion was. So I shudder at what I said, but even more so, I shudder at the fact that in that process, it did not occur to me once that any of the girls in that group might have had an abortion. Not once did it occur to me. Because, of course, we weren't those kinds of people. Now, it's easy just to condemn that version of myself or to pretend that I never was that. I think those are the two options that we generally go with, um, especially in, in our culture. To do that is, is to sort of blow up part of the, the road that led to where I am now. And it's also to make me incredibly condemning of those who still occupy the place that I used to occupy. I was hearing um, some research recently about young people, people in their kind of late teens and their relationship with social media and the fact that most of them refuse to write anything, even vaguely controversial or even vaguely political on social media out of fear of the condemnation of their future selves. They know that things are changing so quickly. This, this arc in our own time is bending so quickly that in 10, 15 years' time, if someone finds that thing that they wrote when they were a late teenager, how, will they be cancelled? Will they be condemned? I think I'm, I'm eternally grateful for the fact that most of the things I said and did in my late teens are lost to history. I think I mentioned the other day that I was clearing up the old podcasts episodes from our church from like 10, 12 years ago. And yeah, coming across the fact that I was still referring to God as he when I was first in this community. I'd forgotten that I did that. Again, I'd erased that from my own self-concept because all of us would much rather that our history looks like the microphone cord where we've always said, done, believed the same things, and they've always been the things that are right today.
Anyway, that was a very long way of introducing what is essentially a pretty self-evident concept, I think, this idea of, of extending the rope metaphor to see it as this long arc that bends towards where we are now and will continue to bend towards greater love and greater justice. But I think it's an incredibly important metaphor for now as um, with cancel culture and with um, the way social media operates, um, it, it is creating a real culture of, of purity and exclusion and condemnation. And there must be ways that we can fight for justice and fight for liberation without it turning into a purity culture that condemns everyone that is not in quite the right place, condemning everyone that looks like we did a couple of years ago. I don't know exactly how we do that, and that can be something that we can continue to talk about. Um, I was uh, listening to an episode of Brian McLaren's podcast, Learning How to See, this morning, which is talking about um, this idea of purification as a, as a dominant story in our culture. And I'll post that this week because it has a lot of helpful stuff about this. Um, and as I said before, I recognize that um, this framework applies more to people like me, yeah, more perhaps to people who have been um, perpetrators, who have been those that have stood up for or represented kind of oppressive versions of the tradition than it might for some of you. So I, I guess that um, the challenge is for you to, to find your place with this metaphor. It's certainly not, as we always say, it's not asking people to, um, to just forgive perpetrators without there being any kind of process of making amends, without there being any process of, of justice, without there being any acknowledgement of things that have happened, yeah? The danger in the church is always to frame us all as perpetrators rather than acknowledge victimhood in the space as well. So that's not what I want to do in this space. All right, I'm going to stop there um, before we move to communion and just see if there's any um, thoughts or reflections um, does it feel like a helpful extension to the, the rope metaphor to see it as this long arc that bends towards justice and love? That's a very vague and open invitation, so <laughs> thanks, Annika, for rescuing me. Oh, I love a vague and open in invitation. Um, I just was struck really by the parallel. I'd never thought of the kind of conditions of cancel culture as a purity culture. And so I was really struck by that as someone who's thought a lot about like cancel culture and the situations for which we have to like create space for people to figure stuff out. Um, so I was, yeah, just really grateful for that perspective. And then also just, I guess, as a direct response to what you were saying at the end, that it maybe applies more to perpetrators and for the rest of the community. I guess I just wanted to respond to that by saying, um, even for the people who occupy a couple of marginal, 
marginalized identities, like we're kind of vast majority white church. And um, I think it's really important that we acknowledge that and also, uh, yeah, try and kind of hold space for people to figure this stuff out. Um, yeah, I, I guess I just wanted to respond by saying, yeah, I don't think it is just you that this applies to, um, that there's probably for all of us our own little arcs of um, figuring out what justice is in our lives um, and how we treat another is a real part of that. So I hope that makes sense. There's a vague and in rambly answer for your invitation. Definitely makes sense. I've got so many different thoughts swirling around about so many things that what you said connected with, so I'm hoping what comes out makes some sense. But the other people who resemble our younger selves and um, my reflection is that different people's life journeys confront them with some of these issues at different times of their lives and so... To some extent, yes, younger selves, because we would hope that we, that we develop and we move towards that compassion and that different view of the world. But, for, but it doesn't necessarily mean younger people. And I think about the people that are in my life now and in the past who were so black and white in their thinking and the frustration of trying to deal with that and you try to have any of these deep, meaningful conversations with, not only do you meet a, uh, a brick wall, but if you push it, it disrupts the relationship. Um, and thinking about how you handle that, but this understanding and this way of viewing it might actually help me to respond to them with some compassion and understanding and hopefully a way through to keep that relationship going at least. Yeah, it's really helpful. It, it reminds me of... Because um, the other thing I thought of is just the whole role of allyship in this, that um, I was listening to a conversation about the voice referendum recently and how a lot of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander activists are saying, um, we're, we're stepping back now because what needs to happen, what clearly needs to happen as a result of this referendum is everyone else just needs to have conversations. <laughs> like, you white people need to just sort your shit out and talk to each other and work out what, what do you want? We know what we want. We're really clear on what we want. What do you want? Um, and how are we going to move this thing forward? And that's the thing, I think, um, as is it, I guess it's the same as a queer ally, recognising that there are conversations that I can have that are safe for me to have that are not necessarily safe for queer people to have with people that look like I used to look. Um, and so it, it is, it's really complex. There's so many different ways of looking at this. And so there's ways in which it's easy for someone like me to, to condemn myself and be paralyzed by that, by that. But the inspiring thing is to think, wow, because I used to be that, because of my identity, I am so well placed to have certain conversations. Obviously not, you know, nothing for us without us. You know? <laughs> not, not on behalf of or over the people that I'm in allyship with. Um, but yeah, it's just recognising that there are, there are conversations that some of us can have that others can't. Um, thank you. Just moving to communion then. Um, uh, 
just acknowledge that, you know, in some ways Mahatma Gandhi was a, a controversial figure in his own right. Um, but I, I did want to talk as we move to communion about um, the way that this more complex and nuanced image of a tradition also opens us up not just to rich strands within our own tradition, but to strands that other traditions can offer us, that we can weave in strands from other traditions. Um, and when it comes to the cross, when it comes to the death of Jesus, um, the, the gift of Mahatma Gandhi's reading of the cross, the way it inspired Martin Luther King Jr. Um, Shane's going to talk about this later on, so I'm gonna, not going to talk too much about it. But as with all good things, it's, it all starts in New Zealand. Um, but there is... Um, I, I just listened to something, something the other day about how um, when Gandhi saw the story of Jesus, Gandhi saw his own experience of being a colonized person, a nonviolent resistor to empire, and, and just instantly recognized Jesus as that. Uh, and so handed the cross back to the West, saying, oh, this is this incredible act of self-sacrifice from a non-violent resistor of empire. Um, and a lot of the strands of liberation theology and all of that kind of stuff come from bringing in other traditions. Um, Anyway, so I guess as we come forward and have communion today, I want us to recognize the beauty of, of such a simple metaphor of, you know, bread and wine, crackers and juice, and how it can give us this kind of center of gravity in all the complexity of the tradition that we occupy. Uh, such a rich symbol. We can spend our entire lives, as we weave new strands into our tradition, finding new resonances in this incredibly simple pair of symbols. Um, so I want to invite you to do that today as you come forward and take a piece of cracker and a thimble of juice. Um, to, to maybe create a little montage of the ways in which you have understood this thing over time um, as part of a prayer of hope that as we move forward in our journey with Jesus, we might find ever kinder, ever more life-giving ways of engaging with these beautiful symbols of bread and wine. Um, so, yeah, if you'd like to come forward, take a little bit of cracker and some juice. As always, if you don't want to participate, that's totally fine. It's entirely up to you. And when we're all gathered in a loose circle, I'll pray. Thanks. Yeah, that, that did feel a little bit meandery, so I'm glad we had a learning objective. So don't forget the learning objective, everyone. Hopefully that will... <laughs> help. Um, I'm going to finish with a prayer that I've uh, been using a bit through the series. Again, that connects with different images of God. And then we'll eat and drink. Loving God, help us to find our prophetic self, 
our fierce mother self. Help us to find a place for her amongst our other selves. May we listen when she cries out for her children, when she cries out for justice. May we listen to her anger and her sorrow when she calls us to remember, remember who we are and remember who you are. Loving God. Amen. Let's eat and drink. Thank you.